Recently, Bangalore faced torrential rains and many parts of the city were flooded, disrupting life for residents and office goers in a bad way. Bangalore's traffic is legendary for being nightmarish. We have the most unimaginatively engineered roads and there are many problems that are unique to Bangalore and also common to many parts of the world, leave alone India. Bengaluru is also one of the cities that is on the top of the pile for its technology services and startup companies. These companies wake up to the problems when they occur, conduct meetings with lawmakers and then forget about it. Their anger is quick to rise when you point out the irony. Yet a major infrastructure such as Bangalore Airport and its access and mobility has been work in progress for the past 20 years, inconveniencing and infuriating every single one of the citizenry. Has there been a dearth of famous names on committees and boards or the social media outcry and meme fests? Something doesn't add up here, isn't it? Why do we continue to live and tolerate so much mediocrity around us while crowing about how great our work contributions are to society? Where is the innovation that we all need so desperately, at least to prevent pseudo-disasters, leave alone disasters that are out of human control? This episode of the podcast is dedicated to the theme of innovation. We visit the portals of IIT Madras for a dialogue with Professor Dr. Prabhu Rajagopal at the Department of Mechanical Engineering, whose research and teaching focuses on innovation and design-led solutions to inspection problems in complex structures and under challenging operating conditions, and is also faculty in charge of the Center of Innovation. With over 25 funded projects, 180 technical articles, 25 filings, 4 granted IPs, and a granted copyright trademark each, he is widely recognized for work on remote asset management in the marine and energy sectors and social focus on water, health, and sanitation. Prior to joining IIT, Professor Raj Gopal worked as a postdoctoral researcher at Imperial College London, where he developed hybrid modeling techniques for ultrasonic inspection of welds on a Rolls-Royce funded project. Let's zero in on to you. Despite coming from the most challenging of academic environments, you have still managed to retain both your poetic, philosophical and scientific <laughs> side. Yeah. Give us a little insight into that. You have a, a recent publication. How would that publication, and that publication is distributed on Amazon, how would it change in a digital world, according to you? Sure, thank you. And, uh, it's a weighty question. But um, I think the fact that I had exposure to different environments, uh, I think sort of helps. And also, I think I come from a family background and the upbringing where, uh, you know, some of these things are appreciated, whether it's poetry or, you know, my dad was fond of uh, literature, you know, Shakespeare, for example. We, you know, we were exposed to these things from childhood. So my dad was again fond of Wordsworth and Keats, um, all, you know, all these poets. My mom is a, uh, you know, big aficionado of literature. 
since childhood so i have had an you know active interest in the arts the literature and uh, poetry although my dad forbade me from learning art in a serious manner uh, because he felt that i'm going to get distracted from my uh, studies i i sort of took the view that look this is this is how the world is right so given the background where we come from uh, you know there is only one way forward here right so let me go forward in this way but i will continue to do the other things on the side so i maintained a very lively interest in in poetry i was fortunately in uh, in the uk which is actually the mecca of english language poetry and uh, you know there are just like here you have kural on buses yeah. in london even the underground uh, you know tube will have great poets you know uh, written over there uh, as such so i have uh, that sort of continued to nurture uh, my uh, poetic interests and um, imperial college library imperial college london is where i did my phd from they have a fantastic library and i could read uh, some of the best poets including neruda for example mm. who's, who remains my uh, pablo neruda is one of my strong inspirations as such and they had this excellent bookstore on campus so here too we have a bookstore which i believe needs an upgrade so you could get the best latest books in there so and you know i i could read a lot of neruda out there and i think that's how my interest in poetry uh, continues and i think london is a melting pot of uh, design art you have some of the best galleries out there you have tate uh, which has both the traditional as well as modern art galleries i've been to tate modern gallery countless numbers of times victoria and albert is next just next to imperial college uh, mm-hmm. london and then in uh, there is this uh, in hyde park there is the serpentine lake and by that you have the serpentine art gallery which happens every summer through that in this 8 7 or 8 years i was there i could you know get acquainted with the best of the latest contemporary art so my poetry is actually um, a, a, what i call as a you know art poetry where you know i try to explore different themes like cubism or you know minimalism or uh, even magical realism through poetic means as such now this is maybe ultimately connected to also the philosophical quest you mentioned philosophy right in the indian philosophical tradition we are goaded to uh, you know explore uh, satyam shivam sundaram right. right the truth auspiciousness and the beautiful right so uh, over the years in some way i have sort of managed to connect everything i do to the same quest if it is poetry it is the same thing i am exploring the beauty and uh, you know the the rhythm in in the language whether it is science is the same thing i'm making a new discovery and there is this ananda of uh, discovery and philosophy is also the same thing it is a quest of the truth in trying to understand what is the true basis of all existence and some of that comes from the family uh, tradition as such so for example when i was growing up there was a book that was given to me uh, by a sage who were visiting and the book said like you know what is sleep and then the answer was the book is by adi shankaracharya and the answer says a person's ignorance is sleep and that was when i was 12 or something that sort of stayed me all th- till today i'm trying to answer that question like what is ignorance then right so if you are not ignorant then are you not asleep ever so those are the kinds of you know things that live with you and i've sort of unified everything so to say in the sense my quest in science to me is the same question poetry as the same in art or design that i take an avid interest in 
uh, as such and the environment like London for example has played a role in spurring and catalyzing these interests. Now coming to your last point on uh, publications and mass availability of these publications, I think I am thrilled about it. Right? As a poet, for example, I publish poetry for free. Right? Mostly poet, poetry goes, you know, there is very little publication interest in poetry. So we publish it on blogs, on websites, people access it. Sometimes people may be copying those lines, who knows, right? And the same thing will happen with our ideas in the scientific world as well. But if we trust the goodness of people, majority of them are going to cite us, right? This means our work is going to reach a wider audience as such. And what more do we want, uh, you know, uh, to me, as I, I would say I'm an artist more than a scientist. So what more do you want than an audience? The idea of innovation, in my opinion, has to make an impact on life. Because now digital allows us. How does that take place? I'm a faculty in the mechanical engineering department. I'm an associate of our laboratory, the Center for Non-Destructive Evaluation. And this laboratory is, uh, may I say, one of the most innovative groups in our campus. Today we have had uh, up to 12 startups come out of our laboratory. People, who, students uh, who have graduated from here or students who are studying with us have come up with these uh, companies and so on. So it's very innovative. There is a lot of churn going on in our laboratory here. In addition, you know, I am also a startup founder in several uh, some of these ventures that have come out. I am a you know, fellow traveler on the journey. And uh, I today am the faculty in charge of an organization called Center for Innovation. The Center for Innovation is our Tinker Lab with a motto, walk in with an idea, walk out with a product. So today, it's uh, this campus's largest student activity. Almost 10% of the students participate in it. And there are several clubs in the Center for Innovation. About 13 of them are dedicated to hobby activities and uh, six of them are involved in competition. Things like Hyperloop, Formula Racing, Mars, uh, sending a probe to Mars, sending a rocket to the uh, upper atmosphere and stuff like that, so competitions. And there are as many as four support teams, teams only dedicated to supporting all other activities. For example, there is a branding and engagement, there is a project management, there is a web ops and analytics. So these are clubs that just support all other, uh, all other teams and so on. So innovation on this campus um, is now you know, happening in this, web, a, a, what do you say, multi-spectral environment. Students uh, you know, come, come here with a very high degree of uh, training and qualification. They're all brilliant young people and they have you know, great ideas. Right? But what we have done is we have created fora where they can come and explore these ideas. So to me, innovation is about new creation, right? innovation. So the, the, the thing is there in the word. And it is not just any new creation, but rather trying to fulfill certain objectives. Right? Always innovation has a framework in which it's, it sits in. So uh, there is a worldview that you are espousing. Right? There is also the spirit of the times or the zeitgeist, as they say, that you, you are adhering to. And uh, there is an overarching, um, what do you say, philosophy as well that is sort of driving you. So within the Indian context, you know, these are all today quite well laid out. Right? The worldview here, we are coming out of the old you know, socialist worldview. Right? Today, we believe in uh, you know, capitalism with a heart. 
we still you know uh, want to may you know makes uh, technology serve the society i think that is the general spirit of entrepreneurship in this country and this is due to our historical reasons also during from our independence period onwards we've always been saying you know uh, swadeshi that low technology that can come up from local roots that can benefit our society here and now and this is this spirit is sort of reinforced in the echo chambers of our society and that is the general you know uh, guiding spirit and world view uh, in our uh, in our society where we believe that any technology is only as good as what you know solution it can bring what benefits it can bring to the society it must be affordable it could it must be uh, you know solving certain very vital pressing Uh, problems as such so that is uh, the kind of world view we are uh, operating on the spirit of the times of course is well defined by this government where we are saying make in india make it indigenous but this is actually not you know anachronistic again as i said mahatma gandhi himself was saying swadeshi and so we seem to have a tradition of trying to dip into our own roots to try and find solutions so it is in this context that innovation is thriving Uh, within our context, our, our campus. So our campus is not an island. We are part of our wider society, where you know these are the kinds of trends that are shaping our mindset. Today we have uh, provided many fora for students to uh, you know bring out their innovative spirit. So there is something known as a you know tech sock, what we call as technical society. Over there, you know projects are given out in for students in their first year as they join freshmen. here so they come up and solve some ideas so they, they get their uh, you know they get they get their hands dirty with these uh, you know projects and then you have cfi which is center for innovation which is what i am championing and center for innovation has many clubs and each of these clubs is actually uh, you know extraordinarily structured so there is first year is volunteers second year is team members third year is coordinators by fourth year they become advisors actually so they are you know they and then the baton is passed on to the next generation as such so through doing these projects these people are honing their different skills you know they are managing projects they are also raising money for themselves we give them some seed funding but many of them are raising money on their own for their projects so for example hyperloop this team has performed so well you know and they have raised close to you know, maybe 20 crores of money on their own and these are students right as such right so they 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 raise their own money and they compete in international events where they must uh, you know compete with the best teams from the world so this is cfi now there are layers on top of this we have uh, something known as a the entrepreneurship cell where students are exposed to entrepreneurial ideas you know how do you make a business plan how do you pitch to investors how do you uh, have a product market fit so these are some themes that they are exploring over there we then have something called nirman which is a which was actually originally a cfi club it's become its own activity now which is a pre incubation cell so if somebody has uh, you know great ideas but still not ready to take it to the market you can go and house yourself in nirman then on top we have few other fora such as the gopalakrishnan deshpande center and they their uh, role is to translate laboratory research into the product you know into mar- in, into marketable products not necessarily from students but more from research laboratories so um, there is gdc there is rural technology cell 
uh, and so on. And finally, on top of all of this, it's our incubation cell. IIT Madras incubation cell is a uh, independent body. It's a Section 8 company promoted by IIT Madras. So it's even physically, it sits outside of IIT campus, although connected by an umbilical cord. Right. But it's its own organization. Right. So when you're you're you pass through Nirman, for example, you know that you have a product that's you know that's very well fit for the market. You already have some investment interest, and you know that this is a product that's going to work. You have a, what they call as a minimum viable product. You cross over to the campus and go to the incubation cell. You don't need to be graduated. But you, your idea needs to be very mature for you to uh, get incubated over there. And this is how innovation is happening on campus. So we have some inherent flaws in the evolution of the innovation ecosystem. How do you deal with those challenges? I think the answer has to be nuanced because I think uh, historically our training has been more theoretical, you know, more... Uh, fundamental insight based kind of uh, training. So our students uh, would be very good at problem solving. So if you give them a problem to solve and that problem is exciting enough for them, I bet you know they are going to solve it for you. And I've seen this time and time again. That when a new problem is given to them, which is very exciting and I tell them, look, if you solve this, you're going to get a nature paper out of it. It's going to be so significant. And, you know, 99% of the time I'm going to get an answer out from, you know, he or she. But when it comes to sustained working, you know, on something and where, you know, the, it, the premises may not be as exciting as this, that you, it need not be a world beating thing, right? It's, but you need to work on it in a sustained manner. That is where I think they are failing. And that is where the, the challenge is. And uh, as I, I said in the, in the beginning, about 10% of our students are involved in CFI, but that means 90% are not. Right. And so, I can 100% tell you, if you hire somebody who's had a background from our Center for Innovation, and I'm not saying this because today I'm their faculty in charge, I have been associated with them in various capacities over the years, you, you're not going to fail with them. They'll, they're not going to fail you. Right. right, they are going to uh, help you solve this problem. The reason being, they are in these high-pressure situations, but you know, drawn out over a period of time. They know how to work in a team. They know that you know they don't have to solve everything. There are other people who uh, can help them in this process. Right. So they are good team players. They know how to manage projects. That's a very important skill. Right. Some of our students are extremely good at you know gathering information over a short period of time. But, you know, they will not be able to manage their time over three months, four months, six months. But that's the training they are getting over here. Okay. And you mentioned about competition, right? But competition is something that is hardwired into our psychology, I think, right? Because of our population, we are competing for things all the time. Right. So how about merging fun with competition? That's what we are trying to do at CFI. And so students are coming in, uh, you know, uh, doing competitions, but in a fun environment. So... Uh, to answer you straightforward, I think the way to do this is to make students uh, go through a evaluation process that is more sustained and that is more uh, uh, that is more about you know not about instant problem and instant uh, solving an instant gratification, but rather about putting in sustained effort over a period of time. Now a lot of us have 
you know transformed this way so for example increasingly in many of my courses if you do very well in one exam for example you're never going to get the top grade right or, or even if you did very well in three of the exams you're never going to get the top grade there are also assignments in there there are also projects in there and sometimes the top grade is reserved only for someone who's done very well in the project right or i op- i throw a, throw open a challenge to students and say if you do well in this i won't even care about the exams you can still get the top grade education has to be transformed in that manner and only then we will get uh, you know people who who you as an industry are looking for right. startup are looking for right. even we as startup founders are looking for such kind of you know train uh, people actually right. and right. it will happen but it will take its time there is no innovation that has ever happened in this world without the three steps of simplification modernization and disruption yeah and that disruption can either be a mind to market or a time to market you know something that is either so put it another way it's like abstraction then particularization and then productization can you walk us through some examples in terms of how the simplification of a complex context that we face we as academics here for years have debated that there should be an experiential component to everything that we teach right. but we are research crunched if we say that we give one experimental setup for every student that's nearly impossible because with a with a kind of class strength we're looking at 200 in a class today this might increase it's this is only going to increase going forward as such right but i believe that by leveraging technology in the coming years all of this is going to get solved because we are debating now of using um, ar and vr for example augmented in virtual reality so every course uh, in the future i envisage that will have a complete virtual laboratory environment so they are whatever they are studying they're going to experience it through virtual laboratories for example and then they'll do a little bit of a real laboratory experiment as well right and so in this manner we are going to increasingly uh, make all uh, teaching a matter of not instant problem solving but rather a participatory exercise where students come in and there is a two way exchange today it's entirely one way right i am delivering lectures they are supposed to memorize that and come back and show that they have understood right there is very little chance of even doing the you know an exchange today because it will be unsustainable in terms of time with 200 students in a class or 100 students in a class if i allow question and answers for everyone right. it's not going to work yes so we are going to use technology to solve this you know we we have moocs now which is like large scale you know tech, uh, lecture delivery platforms which students can access and consume offline right they don't have to come to a classroom to do this right. covid has done good in this way that we have understood and uh, started to appreciate the power of you know remote technologies right uh, you're talking about remote work we're talking now about remote learning and this remote learning doesn't have to happen in an off campus setting right i as a lecturer i as a professor can go and upload certain materials which the student can continuously access through the day whenever they want wherever they are and do a participation two way participation as well you know so uh, materials available to them and then the second thing is not, learning is becoming experiential so that you can have you know using virtual or augmented reality for example they go and perform these experiments whenever they want you know wherever they want at their convenient time for example and then third 
a you know, big problem earlier has been in answering questions individually. Now, for example, I envisage chatbots being developed by which students can raise some you know, questions and the chatbot instantly answers their you know, query. So we have to leverage technology and through this, I think uh, you know, this, this issue of um, you know, you know, short attention spans driven by exam cycles will be overcome largely over a period of time. What is your challenge with respect to industry participation with your curriculum? So I, I see where you're getting at. You're saying that, okay, you do not have experimental facilities, but the industry has. Yes. Why don't you just partner with them? But there is a problem of something falling between the fingers, actually. See, our, the, uh, you know, the jargon and terminologies that we use are completely different from what the industry uses. Forget about the educational or learning sphere. Even in technological or research spheres, when we interact with our industry colleagues, Right? Sometimes uh, things are lost in translation. We work in a completely different way to the way industry works. So the industry operates on you know, deadlines, 24-hour cycles, 6-month cycles, 8-month cycles, where they have deliverables to, uh, you know, which they have to achieve certain targets to uh, deliver on uh, and so on. We work in a more knowledge-driven environment where we go a bit slower. We are making new discoveries. We are making fundamental discoveries. But... Uh, although I personally am somebody who works on a spectrum, basically, I am very much interested in low as well as high TRLs. But typically, the academic environment is one of low TRL, right? So the early stage discovery, proof of concept kind of a stage. But whereas the industry is more focused on high TRL, practically applied, um, you know, uh, knowledge, they they wouldn't care or, you know, they wouldn't appreciate something that's coming ground up rather than you know, something that is immediately beneficial in their deliverable cycle as such. So this is where the mismatch happens. So we can and we do send a large number of students on summer internships to the industry. But very often, I'm finding that, you know, they're coming back without much change to themselves. A time and space is economical. It is not infinite for yeah. any one of us. Yeah. How do you see the learning which is so very centric to innovation becoming more adaptive? Today we have entrances happening at the bachelor's level, at the master's level, at PhD level. The bachelors are only, you know, 30 or 40 percent of our student population. We, our student population increasingly, you know, has masters, taught masters, research masters, and PhD, right? And the entry to all of this is now anything between an exam to an interview. Okay. Okay. And we also have a vast system where we have people who are working on our projects actually. These are members of various projects. They're hired on project positions. They also work, you know, similar to us, you know, in a research learning environment. We have a couple of courses today, um, which allow for students to do a year, semester-long project with a professor, for which they can get a credit. Right? And this is not a, you know, taught course. There is no exam. Uh, there is no defined end goal either. It is not as if, like, if you achieve something, you get the best grade. They're working together with the professor and the professor can specify a certain problem and the student gets evaluated based on what kind of efforts they put in. There is no committee even, you know, typically the professor himself or herself evaluates the student. So there are courses like this. There are courses where students can do industry secondments. There are students also do foreign placements to go to other universities. So we have, we have, we are creating an environment where students can choose to learn from a, you know, a range of 
you know, evaluation mechanisms and not just an exam based uh, mechanism. Now on the other hand, we have made our bachelor's curriculum so flexible that today only 50% is a core curriculum. 50% okay. of the credits is left to the student. They can do whatever they want. They can do management, they can do uh, music, they can do arts, they can do finance. We are not judging them. Right? Our core, if you say mechanical engineering, a person needs to do only half of his courses in mechanical engineering. Rest they can do in whatever area they want. So through these mechanisms, we are already changing it. And I think in a couple of years, uh, the education is going to become increasingly experience-oriented, increasingly innovation-oriented. Uh, Your award of uh, the Swarna Jayanti Fellowship to pursue concepts of uh, uh, quantum phenomics. And I'm very curious to understand uh, your views on pervasive computing because that, in a sense, is one of the most definitive aspects yeah. of uh, digital technologies. Phononics right, is a study of sound in its fundamental sense and quantum phononics is trying to take it to its logical conclusion. If you are saying that, you know, if you are studying electricity at a fundamental level, you are looking at an electron. If you are studying light at a fundamental level, you are looking at a photon. So if you are studying sound at a fundamental level, you are looking at a phonon. Right? So that is the analog. So it is said that Albert Einstein himself coined this word called a phonon in the context of Bose-Einstein condensates, right? They were di studying different types of materials and uh, phonons are baryons, so uh, baryonic particles as such, which are actually, uh, as opposed to matter particles, these are actually theorized particles, like a photon or a phonon are theorized particles yeah. as such. So photon is, the, you know, it, it comes from the, you know, uh, matter-energy duality as, uh, as envisaged by Einstein's special relativity theory, that every everything that is a matter or a particle is also a wave, right? wave-particle uh, duality as such. So sound is a wave, so there should also be a particle underlying it and that is uh, a phonon, just like a photon underlies light waves or an electron underlies, underlies an electric uh, wave as such. So now quantum phononics, the goal ultimately is to try and realize sources of these sound units. This has never been done. There are a lot of, you know, theorizations of this. There, recently, I am reading that there are some, you know, also experimental proofs, but still very arcane, very esoteric. Uh, my dream is exactly what you are saying is, can we harness sound to have this pervasive computing? You can say, how? How is that possible, right? But because ultimately, sound and heat are the same. Does that surprise you? I, I don't know if you are... No. If you say data, it has to be all the four forms, which is voice, video, audio and graphics. So audio is sound. Yeah. And sound is one of the most primal energies like heat. There are two ends of the same spectrum. Yeah. That is what I learned after deep study. Yeah. In the sense that when you have incoherent vibration, you know, passing, pulsing through an object that is heat. Yeah. When you have a coherent vibration, that is sound. Yes as such. Yeah. Okay? So sound and heat being different manifestations of elastic energy, if we harness uh, you know, any energy, so tomorrow for example you could be doing, a, you could be a you know, village housewife who is cooking on a chula, but then on the side you are generating you know, heat that is being used in a quantum computer. This might look like a magical feat today, but I don't see it as an impossibility because any quantum phenomenon as we see it today has to happen at extremely low temperatures. 
So you talk about these Google computers and all that, they're all happening at, you know, micro Kelvin temperatures. Micro Kelvin, so that's like few uh, Kelvin after the universe started. That's the kind of, you know, low, uh, you know, that's the kind of extreme cooling you're generating. Now, obviously, a Chula is not in micro Kelvin temperature. So it will be many years before we realize this vision as such. But, you know, ultimately, if you manage to, you know, take control of a sound particle, these are the kinds of applications that I envisage. So the dream that we have is like, suppose you produce a phonon, uh, and you produce a single phonon and with that we will be able to peer inside materials and perform imaging using entanglement. That is, I will retain an, you know, phonon in my laboratory and I will allow another phonon to go out and do its thing but I will know what it is doing because I have this with me and whatever is happening to that is happening to this also. Right. Right. So, and we can do this multiple things. We, I do not need to use two particles. I can use an n particle entanglement. And through this, I'm going to enhance my image quality. Uh, it is, you know, well-known physics that if you have one by root two as a normal, you know, imaging error, you can have one by two to the raise n if you have entanglement, uh, you know, based imaging. Right. Right. So you can just improve the quality of imaging. You can imp you can do computing. You can do, you know, a host of things. Right. But doing it with sound instead of, uh, you know, electromagnetics means you can also do this with heat. And sound may never replace light, right, or electromagnetics, but it can run in parallel with it because electromagnetics is producing heat. And all that heat, and bear in mind, today already, you know, you know that blockchain operations are producing as much heat as Ireland, for example. Every one of your computing operations is going to become, you know, in, uh, like very expensive. And you know Moore's law, they say after a while you cannot increase computing power. Right. And you, the cooling becomes more of a challenge after a while than computing itself. Today we have maybe a dozen quantum computers in the entire world. But imagine if you have a billion quantum computers. Right. Right. The amount of heat it is going to generate. Correct. We envisage a scenario then you use that heat to run a parallel computing architecture. So you're cooling naturally and you're doing some computing on the side, you're doing sensing on the side. This is what uh, the sound revolution is about. Of course, we are miles uh, away from all of this, primarily because I am extremely research crunched. Right? Uh, we, we, we are an IIT, we are number one in India, but the kind of research funding we get is nothing compared to what MIT or Stanford or Harvard come, you know, gets. Right. The fact that we still talk of these colleges in the same league itself is a great achievement for us. True. But reality is, we are extremely you know, low on resources. Right. You know, just to buy one dilution refrigerator, which is what gets me to these low temperatures. To me, it'll take, it is, I've not been able to do for the last three years right. since I got the award. Given the fact that you are leading a blockchain uh, enterprise, do you see this as a, a ledger settlement tool or valuation tool? So, to correction, I'm not yet leading a blockchain enterprise. <laughs> so, uh, we are working on several applications of blockchain and a proto enterprises in healthcare, in skilling, um, and in energy credit tokenization. So we have, I have proto enterprises, teams working on these three directions of which healthcare is the most mature, followed by skilling and energy carbon to, you know, energy credit tokenization or carbon credit tokenization that just started. So to answer you, yes, I believe in the latter. I believe that blockchain is definitely a value creation, right? And I believe that the blockchain revolution is only getting started. 
it is not even like really started right today uh, we uh, we have what i can say the uh, the earliest phase of blockchain where you know yes you're distributing data but you're distributing data across classical computers yes the real revolution is going to happen when you have quantum blockchain when you're going to distribute data across quantum computers or if, even right. if it is device channel and medium independent yes correct and today we are restricted to computers right. imagine blockchain on a mobile phone right, right? a blockchain on a, a little mobile device yeah. right and blockchain on the cloud which is already there right. but you know uh, or a wearable iot, you know, IOT blockchain is leveraging iot so yeah. all that is going to happen and ultimately you know quantum blockchain right. is going to you know come uh, when the quantum technology computing revolution also becomes mass based right. as such so absolutely it's uh, you know it's it's one of the most exciting technologies uh, you know that we are working on we remain interested in so the way uh, you know we start working as academics is that we look at trends and we started we start working on them a few years in advance right so much before for example meta materials were were a thing we were working in our group on meta materials when we used to go and talk to the industry they say what is this you know it's too esoteric too arcane you know when is this ever going to see the light of the day right we were working on them today meta materials you know sony and philips are having meta material innovations um, you know in their uh, devices you know a, a, a camera today has a meta material inside it right right so uh, various uh, applications similarly you know i started working on quantum and particularly on phononics envisaging a certain trend over there and then similarly started working on blockchain almost 5 years ago no you wouldn't believe it so in those 5 uh, years ago it was really not such a buzz as it is today and absolutely you know the power of uh, the transformative power of blockchain is you know is enormous and we believe that blockchain is going to revolutionize not just things like wherever uh, you know today they they as you said you know is just ledger right today it is working in those contexts where there are ledgerizations happening but blockchain is going to revolutionize internet because wherever there is trust you know their blockchain is going to come in blockchain is going to revolutionize banking is going to revolutionize governance i see a, you know in the coming digital age national boundaries being broken down because of digital currencies and yeah. digital passports digital vaccine certificates for example which are non fungible yeah right which this is where we are going that is the disruption that we are working on uh, today how mature is this thought about ecosystem processes there is a lot of realization on this fact that you know we have to build the ecosystem it's it can't be just a partisan thing a parochial thing it can't be a bits and pieces thing it cannot be a marketplace alone right that is also part of it right but it has to be an overarching you know a Uh, and it is it is also being done in a government level so for example government has been uh, um uh, in, you know suggesting that we adopt the same international uh, uh, what do you say rules and guidelines such as fhir for example we have this whole aishman bharat digital mission which increasingly says that any digital entity here will only be accepted if it is fhir compliant as such right so they all are realizing that this has to be an ecosystem thing digital cannot be a bits and pieces piecemeal you know parochial or parts thing so i want to kind of wrap this conversation what is your words of wisdom uh with respect to that importance of innovation and its 
actual practice more than sloganeering about it. Uh, you know, Sri Aurobindo was famous for saying that mind has various categories. You have ordinary mind, inspired mind, intuitive mind, over mind, uh, super mind and so on. So, I think it is our normal mind touching these higher realms uh, of consciousness. These are just modes of thinking, I believe, which are not normal or natural to us. We don't dwell on them very often. But I believe every human being has a capability to access these modes, definitely. And, uh, you know, the innovation, uh, the process of innovation is about being able to, you know, reach these modes in a sustainable manner. It is, it can't be a one aha moment, but can I make this happen, you know, every now and then as much as possible without killing me. Right. Because that one aha moment is going to kill a person, right? He can come back and you know that nothing else happens yeah. so how do we make sure that we can dwell on those higher modes of thinking in a very sustainable manner some in a way that doesn't break us right this is the future of humanity so man becoming superman i think it's it's possible if we can make sure that we can be on that innovation sphere uh, or on those higher spheres of modes of thinking in you know as much as possible and uh, also if it is not as a sudden phenomenon right uh, and it is an extremely excruciating problem for me as a writer, as a poet, because you know when I sit down to write something, I can never write three lines properly, right? And someday, maybe I'm in a class and I get three beautiful lines. Right. It's just out of nowhere, it just flashes in my mind. And I have to take out my book and note it down over there. Right. I just wish it would be more organic. I can sit down, have a coffee and say poetry now appear and then I get three lines. Right? Right. So can that happen? Of course, this is an ideal. But if it can happen, then imagine the kind, number of problems we can solve. This is, uh, again, to invoke another philosopher, to go from you know, um, analytic thinking to synthetic thinking, Immanuel Kant. Right? Analytic thinking is our normal mode of knowledge. We collect information and we make some you know, ratiocination out of it. But a synthetic thinking is getting information that is not evident directly. Right? Just getting some new uh, kinds of things. But can we be synthetic in, our, uh, you know, in, in the way we think? And if we do that, I think we can solve a range of problems for us and without getting ourselves killed in the process and hopefully make the world a better place. On that note, Professor, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I yeah. really enjoyed this conversation. Very insightful. Deeply appreciate thank you. Uh, the time that you have taken uh, do this session. I would uh, hopefully want to come back for a few more uh, you know, yes. as the season progresses. To you as well. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Today's topic, innovation, is like breathing. It doesn't need anybody's permission, but it needs discipline. The discipline of conscious breathing is also similar to conscious innovation. So let's break this topic down about innovation. It is not an abstract, gooey, unrecognizable subject. Innovation is three things. The first one is simplification. What do you simplify? You simplify the complexity of understanding a subject. And in the process, you create an hypothesis for a solution. The second step is modernization. And modernization is essentially bringing that solution to relevance. To the relevance of life and the times that we live in. And how it can be applied to the people who use it.
and third is disruption. The disruption is between expectations in terms of a minimum value that can be delivered or aspirations, a maximum value that can be delivered. Innovation, therefore, is both mind to market and time to market. And both are disruptive. At this point on our planet, we are at a strategic inflection point. There is a great need for more mind to market than time to market solutions. We are in the middle of a digital revolution. Just like the fire, digital is changing every aspect of human life. And therefore, this lens of digital needs to be applied. And what outcome does it provide? It provides this ability to shift our societies from a financial ecosystem-led one to a human ecosystem-led one. Which means that you and I have to be participative in this process. And participation means being prepared. And how do you know you are prepared? So there is a scale for innovation. It starts from innocence, awareness, understanding, definition, competence, and excellence. On every subject, we have to be able to measure where we are. And the minimum threshold that needs to be established is definition on any given subject matter because it becomes possible thereafter to scale from definition to excellence. It is very difficult to start from innocence all over again. But imagine this. This innocence to excellence is a progressive scale. What happens when you see the other side, which is a regressive scale? It starts from ignorance. And there are subjects where we need to move the needle from ignorance into at least innocence. And there are subjects where humanity has made tremendous progress and we need to re-establish how we can take that definition that we understand into excellence. We have been able to build a great definition around commerce, whether it is a B2B, whether it is a B2C. The digital offers us this great opportunity to connect every single human being on this planet and in the process set the definition for what products and services are required to enable a higher quality of life. The customer-consumer-led business models influencing businesses who create value chains with other businesses to be able to create and deliver products and services that are relevant to the future. This whole concept of value needs to be understood from the point of both creation and addition, which is essentially the mind to market and the time to market. We understand that the mindsets need to be changed and this mindset change can happen with design thinking. Abstracting the potential and connecting it to performance. Design on the other hand, we know 
is something that has trade-offs. With design, deriving from design thinking, the trade-offs can be minimized. I hope that this is a great single takeaway from this episode. My next guest is going to be Santosh Babu, founder and CEO of OD Alternatives and Orglens. And the topic will be leadership. Write to FOW at GIGGR.app. We want to pursue a dialogue, a dialogue that is very important in order to raise the value quotient or the value capital, for which we need to enrich it with intellectual and human capital. Without this triad, we don't have a growth engine. And that is the problem of today's society. Thank you very much for being part of this episode. I look forward to bringing another episode. Hashtag Tuesdays at 5. Until then, be safe, be happy, be innovative.